0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Average workers now spending just a day and a half in the office. Emerging small-scale London architects win huge commissions in the capital. Bill Bryson joins the chorus of names calling to save Oxford Street's M&S from demolition. And could golf courses be taking more than their fair water share as drought strikes Europe? My name is Rachel Copel, and I work at Open City. I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Helen Arvanitakis. Helen is the director of the Design District. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Workers are spending an average of just one and a half days in the office each week, according to a new survey covered by the BBC. The findings compare starkly similar data collected before the pandemic, which found that UK workers spend an average of 3.8 days in the office in a five-day working week. The survey of 43 offices around the UK gauging the behavior of nearly 50,000 people, appears to back up claims that following the first lockdown in March 2020, workers have adapted to a work-from-home model which has been difficult for companies to shift. Carried out by the consultancy Advanced Workplace Associates, the survey found offices are at their quietest on Fridays with only 13% office attendance. After Friday, Monday was the next quietest day with less than a fifth of employees commuting into the office, while midweek attendance peaked at 39%. Andrew Mawson, the managing director of AWA, said, quote, Due to the pandemic, the hybrid working genie is out of the bottle. Of the various industries surveyed, the results suggest that people in banking had the highest average weekly attendance rate of 47%, whereas those working in tech and logistics were least likely to commute in with an office attendance rate of just 15%. So Helen, what's this all about? How have working patterns changed in London over the years? What did a typical London working week used to look like when you started your career? And how does that compare to now? Okay, well, I'm extremely ancient.
0: So when I started my career, the working week was very much office-based because frankly, um, the internet didn't do the same job that it does now. So Whilst email was probably one of the core methods of communication, it, it you couldn't necessarily transfer large files and so on. So face-to-face meetings, um, conference calls and, um, you know, presentations with printed materials very much the way that it all went. So, you know, over that period of time that I've been working, there's been an absolutely seismic shift. But I would say that the majority of that shift has probably happened since and during the pandemic. I can't help thinking that that if you were to do the exact same survey in and amongst the creative industries you'd probably get a completely different set of data out of it and in fact if you were to then compartmentalize the creative industries themselves you would get a different set yet again i know certainly from the point of view of the design district we actually have uh, different businesses inside the district that have very um varied set of working patterns and it's really interesting to see the ebbs and flows of people through the district during the working week. I mean, the one bit that probably does resonate out of that research is the Friday thing. And it feels like Friday has very much become people's catch-up day. But aside from that, I'm not sure that it, it,
1: that, those, that data resonates entirely. And so, Helen, this data seemingly confirms what people have been speculating for quite a while now, that the conventional office campus is in crisis, and also highlights how employers are struggling to get office attendance up, even without lockdown restrictions. What does this mean for traditional providers of large corporate-style office space, which seemingly have more empty desk space now more than ever? In a weird sort of way, it's becoming a bit of a sustainability problem in
0: that, because you've got this cluster of people in the middle of the week. You need to be able to provide space for your peak um, rather than your average. So that's an issue, I think, but probably more of a sort of operational rather than a space issue. The space issue that we are seeing and talking to other people in the industry appears to be kind of coming out as a real trend post-pandemic is actually around quality of space. And there's, there's two parts to that. One is around the fact that most people now are choosing quality of life. Um, and trying to understand how their job fits into getting the best quality life they can possibly get. And then the other part of that is providing a space that is good enough to encourage your staff to come in, which is really most likely about providing people with brilliant spaces to be able to do their best work. And frankly, there's a lot of quite dull, not particularly inspiring and um, not not fantastically well designed as in really quite generic office space particularly in London and, and kind of some of the sort of um hubs and nodes outside of London that's just not doing a good enough job and and you know that's probably why you, there is this sort of lumpy attendance and and possibly not massively great
1: engagement as well from the staff So Helen, if traditional office setups aren't working in the post-pandemic world, how can we adapt and design office spaces to facilitate new working patterns and be more resilient to a more flexible working environment? And how does the design district tackle the new working landscape? And what does work and life look like here? A lot of what we
0: see at the design district is around quality and flexibility of the spaces. So it's really about making sure that you've got Spaces that are very good quality in terms of the the things that workers, people who are working in the space, want to experience from it. And that might not be about really expensive carpets on the floor. It might, in fact, be about having big windows or lots of toilets or wide staircases or lots of spaces to be able to not be working and at your desk. And, you know, here at the district, the build cost in terms of pounds per square foot is low comparative to new office space that gets built in the West End, for instance, or the city, city fringes even. But it was also, you know, a real demonstration of the fact that providing really great space alongside other stuff, which is not about bricks and mortar, is what really appeals to most businesses, particularly in the creative industries right now. Often with these things, it's the operational side, it's the things that aren't set in
1: the bricks and mortar that make the biggest difference. Two small-scale rising star architecture practices from London, JA Projects and phoenix and Merlin, have been named winners of this summer's most prestigious design commissions. Both project wins were covered by the AJ. Suffolk-based JA Projects, working with A Practice for Everyday Life and Larry Achimpong, has won a contest to design two exhibition spaces inside the Victoria and Albert's New East London Outpost. The team will now draw up plans for a pair of gallery spaces within the O'Donnell and Toomey designed V&A East Museum in the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park due to open in 2025. JA Project's founding director, the Open City trustee, and AJ40 Under 40 winner, Jaden Ali, said, quote, we wanted to be part of a bold and ambitious project that seeks to dismantle historic barriers and foster new communities, and to contribute to V&A East's mission to amplify the voices of the artists, designers, and makers that have been overlooked by history. Meanwhile, renowned practice David Chipperfield Architects, along with rising stars of Peckham, Phoenix, and Merlin, have won the competition to design the London School of Economics final set piece, academic building on its main Holborn campus. The RIBA organized competition sought an exceptional piece of university architecture on the site of an existing building, which was completely rebuilt in the 1950s following bomb damage in the war and was formerly home to the Royal College of Surgeons. David Chipperfield's and Fieks and Merlin's winning concept will retain and transform the building to house new conference facilities, teaching spaces, and digital labs. It will also be home to a film studio, a 350 seat theater, seminar rooms, breakout areas, research accommodation, and a cafe. So, Helen, firstly, who are JA Projects and Phoenix and Merlin, and why is this news so remarkable for everyone who cares about the quality of our built environment? What sorts of projects have they worked on in the past, and why are the successes of small scale practices like this so important to architectural innovation in the capital? What we have is practices that are
0: definitely younger and and earlier on in their careers than certainly Chipperfield and some of the other names that we've been um, talking about. The thing that's really important about this news is that um, it's a recognition, we hope, and hopefully a moving trend of clients in the value that that, um, these younger practices um, can bring to bigger projects and we're talking about you know a lot of money in there for a lot of risk from the client's point of view but teaming up these practices with other practices who bring um different sets of expertise I think is is you know really refreshing and great news for the industry more widely the the experience and connection that both VX and Martin MJ and projects have with the communities that will be using the spaces I'm sure will prove to be completely invaluable for the quality of the, the, um, the final result of those projects. You know, if they were able to embed some of their own experience, plus some of their um, ability to be able to connect with those communities into that project, then it will, without a doubt, be much more successful than just having the big practices on their own. I think it's absolutely fantastic news. I'd love to see more of this
1: across the board what is the significance of a relatively small practice like JA projects headed by a talented AJ 40 under 40 architect winning such a big commission? As we see more top commissions like this going to fresh names rather than established bastions of British architecture, how might the fabric of cities like London change and is that a good thing? You would hope to see off the back of um, these projects of a resonance
0: in the space that speaks much louder and much more clearly to a different um, community, particularly in the case of the VA. I mean I think the LSE building's possibly slightly different in that it's designed for a specific topic that is being taught and and a you know a student group. Whereas, you know, our museums have a broader audience, they have a need to get a wider audience in and they they absolutely have a duty to um, make their content appeal to a a wider audience, particularly in the case of the Olympic Park where, you know, you have a blank canvas and a community around it that could um, really benefit from having that engagement in the content there. Beyond that, I think there's um, something around... The learning experience for the architecture practices in both directions, right so you your young practices absolutely have knowledge and and years of experience and, and many shortcuts that they will be able to learn from working alongside these bigger practices, but equally, you hope that the bigger practices have got the courage and the patience to learn from the younger practices and and really understand um what is happening. With younger communities and how to engage with them, and therefore create better spaces. There's one more thing that I think is really noteworthy about, particularly the LSE project, is that finally we've got uh, you know a big landowner doing important work right in the middle of the city, and it's about building reuse as well as some um, um, n- you know new architecture, and having um, a good client make a big statement about reusing their existing building I think is great news for the for the you know the the climate situation particularly in the world of architecture right now.
1: Absolutely yeah. So London School of Economics has a portfolio of exceptional buildings in its estate. You've got the Grafton Architects Designed Marshall Building, O'Donnell and Toomey Architects Soswee Hawk Student Center and Roger Stirk Harbor and Partners Center Building making this one of the most exciting commissions going on in London right now. What's the significance that it's been won by a collaboration between Chipperfield, a behemoth in the architecture scene, and Felix and Merlin, a growing smaller scale practice from Peckham? I think the
0: significance will definitely be around the fresh and alternative approach that we will get from a practice that must have studied architecture, I'm guessing something like 30 or 40 years after Chipperfield. And also beyond that, Feex and Mellon, if you look at their portfolio, they're doing a lot of community-based projects. And I think bringing some of their learnings and the elements from that will have a really positive impact on the final product. And I really hope that the Chipperfield team see this as a fantastic learning experience, what they can learn from Felix and Mellon and not just the other way around.
1: So Helen, Design District itself features buildings by eight different practices, all of whom are known for their super cool and trendy designs. We've got 6A Architects, Adam Kahn Architects, Architecture 00, Barozzi Viega, David Cohn Architects, HNNA, Mole Architects, and Selgas Cano, all involved in this project. What has been the benefit of using such a range of different and relatively small practices when creating the Design District?
0: Starting from the outside, you get this real interesting experience as you're walking around um, the districts and to all of the different architectural styles. So these architects were asked to work in isolation for a large part of the design process, which meant that they were very much working in their own aesthetic and focusing on their plot and how to maximize the benefit of it. You know, there could have been a tendency, had they all been revealed early on, What you know, who was working on which plots, there might have been a tendency to respond to the buildings around them rather than focus purely on what they were able to do. So I think there's a real interest in um, the variety of materials, the approaches to the brief, the response to the very specific plot that they're working on. So from my point of view i think that's that's been a um a delight to watch unfold and and to be built and now to be occupied um and then beyond that it's also just been fascinating experience in terms of the different um internal responses inside the buildings to the brief in terms of things like um you know where the core has been placed and the impact that that has on the space and the advantages that the architects have have taken from those different um, placements and, and uses of the internal spaces. And, you know, what a delight to go into this building that we're in, for instance. So Bureau is inside um, a building by Architecture 00, which is called D1. And you have a completely different set of ceiling heights on the different floors. And you have a different depth of overhang of the floor plates, which creates a very alternative set of spaces as you move through the building Um, and having that variety has been really helpful actually from a commercial point of view as well because it's meant that our tenants have been able to wander around and say you know I love this space because the the windows are huge or I really love this space because there's so much wall space for me to pin stuff up on and and the toilet's right next door or whatever it is that you know floats the boat of the tenant so Um, It's it's been a real advantage having that that mixture and um, variety.
1: The acclaimed travel author Bill Bryson has added his name to those opposing Marks and Spencer's contentious plans designed by leading London architects, Pilbrow and Partners, to flatten its flagship Oxford Street store. This story was covered by the AJ and has been something we have covered extensively before on this show. Bryson joins high-profile architect Steve Tompkins, Sarah Wigglesworth and Ian Ritchie, and MP Duncan Baker, in voicing his aversion to the proposal. The renowned American-British author this week donated £500 to the fighting fund established by Save Britain's Heritage to cover its legal costs in opposing Marx and Spencer in the inquiry on October 25th. The crowdfunder has a target of £20,000 and is now approaching the halfway mark. Bryson, who announced his retirement in 2020 and is best known for his books, Notes from a Small Island and a Short History of Nearly Everything, told the AJ, I believe it would be a great shame to tear down the m and building. I have no special knowledge or insights about the matter. I just wish to help stop a bit of foolishness. So Helen, what's this all about? Why is it so significant that cultural figures like Bill Bryson are joining the campaign to save this important historic building from demolition and putting their weight behind something that is being opposed both on cultural and environmental grounds by many campaigners?
0: First and foremost, this has got to be an an environmental catastrophe. I cannot begin to understand why anybody would want to knock down that building to replace it with another one. Um, but it seems completely bonkers to to even contemplate doing that. It was a purpose-built store from the 1930s and, you know, retail's changed a lot, but rebuilding your store hasn't, you know, is not going to turn around Marks & Spencer's fortunes, let's face it. I did a little bit of retail design early on in my um, career and, and, you know, the rules actually are very little to do with the bricks and mortar. They're much more to do with things like the height that the product is at and how much daylight is in the room and so mm. on. So I don't. I don't think redesigning the building is going to solve the problem mm-hmm. that Emma, Marks and Spencers is saying they need to tackle. On top of that, it's an environmental catastrophe. I just it seems completely in contrast to everything that people are trying to do in other parts of construction to knock that building down and and start again. When I read this story, I, I was reminded of. Um, People who are interested in architecture, who walk down Oxford Street, surely they delight. Certainly, I do in the story that Oxford Street itself tells. It's a sort of um, onion with layers of of department stores from different eras down the whole street. And to lose one of the more significant ones would be a, a you know real shame at this point. Walking down that street and sort of drinking in the lovely facades of the Marks and Spencers building, but also the Selfridges building, the John Lewis building, and then you've got Liberty a bit further on, and there are other significant buildings on that street. I think that would be a real, a real shame to lose
1: that piece on the, on the landscape. And um, so new research published this week has found that global floor space increased by 65% since the year 2000 to stand at 245 billion square meters meaning planet Earth's built environment is now equivalent to the entire land area of the UK. And what's more, by 2050, global floor space is expected to double and could then cover the whole of California. Given that buildings and construction is responsible for 39% of global energy-related carbon emissions— what does this latest data tell us about the importance of deep retrofit and refurbishment compared to demolition and rebuild if we are to meet our climate targets?
0: It seems so very painfully obvious, particularly what is going on globally right now in terms of weather conditions, water, and you know all of the evidence that we are well and truly knee-deep in our climate emergency. It's not coming, it's here right now. And we have an absolute duty to not allow stuff like this to happen. There has to be a much stronger mechanism by which these new big projects can be interrogated and properly measured. It feels like not an entirely scrutable or unified process for measuring the carbon impact of um, big new projects like this um, is a real hindrance at this point. And um, if we were to have a completely unified global system that measured every single aspect of um, construction from knocking a building down to energy performance and, and, you know, all of the different aspects, we might be in a better place
1: to be able to um, measure the impacts that these buildings are having. Severe droughts have been declared throughout Europe following record heat waves, which have depleted reservoirs, caused wildfires, and led to extensive hosepipe bans being implemented in a last-ditch attempt to conserve water. Across the channel, in a possible taste of things to come over here, more than 100 French villages are short of drinking water and a national water ban has been implemented, limiting the use of water to most, with the exception of golf courses. In protest, Extinction Rebellion climate activists in southern France have filled golf course holes with cement, calling golf the, quote, leisure industry of the most privileged. This story has been widely reported in the national media and has ignited fierce debate on Twitter, with some commentators pointing out that the average golf course requires 185,000 cubic meters of water a year to irrigate. In response, Gerard Rougier of the French Golf Federation said, quote, a golf course without a green is like an ice rink without ice. Meanwhile, in a petition, activists said the exemption of golf courses from the restrictions which ban people from washing their cars and watering their gardens showed that, quote, economic madness takes precedence over ecological reason. In the UK, some areas in the south of England are already under hosepipe bans, and it looks like more are soon to follow. However, like France, commercial greens, such as golf courses, are largely exempt. Nikki Russell, the managing director of Waterwise, said, quote, if you're surrounded by a golf course with perfectly green lawns, it gives people pause, makes it harder for people to want to change their own habits if they don't feel everybody is pulling their weight. So, Helen, what has been the impact of the heat wave and drought for people living in London? Has it changed the way people work, behave, and live? And why is it important that everyone shares the same restrictions when crises linked to climate change impact our daily lives?
0: I suspect for most people in London that the the hot weather that we've had um, recently um, has made them realize that our homes aren't particularly well designed for extreme heat. And um, quite a lot of our transport network can't really cope with extreme heat i know that there are definitely some parts of it that are much better than others that you know the new elizabeth line for instance was um, an absolute dream during the heat wave, but some of the older lines really unpleasant also you know some of the older office spaces as well aren't, weren't particularly well designed we here at the design district the majority of our buildings are naturally ventilated and it was definitely very warm in the naturally ventilated buildings We also can see it in a lot of our public spaces. There's definitely not enough shade. We grow the wrong type of grass. It's quite water hungry, the grass that we have in this country. When you get to Southern Europe, there are lots of areas where um, it's more a sort of um, compacted earth and and slightly gravelly type areas in in public realm rather than um, grass, which obviously works when it's really dry. Probably wouldn't work so well when it's very wet here. But I, I, you know, the, the... The thing that struck me most about this story was that um, in reality, um, you know, the future for us will be very extended periods of drought alongside very, very wet periods as well. So we will be in a cycle of drought and flood, you know, for the foreseeable future. And um, having parts of our environment that will um, cope well with those different extremes will really benefit
1: a wide group of people, not just a small green, for a very small handful of people who play golf. Uh, Worryingly, we know that this isn't going to be the last time an extreme weather event like this happens in London. Experts are warning this is just a taster of what's to come. What needs to happen, both on a citywide level and on an individual level, for us to better cope with similar events in the future?
0: Well, there's a lot that we can all do, particularly in the environments that we um, live in. So thinking more carefully about um, how we shade our spaces during the hottest parts of the day so that you don't allow the space to heat up in the first place um, and being really sensible about how um, you cool the space as well, You know, making sure that you have everything open overnight to let the cool air in and the hot air out. Um, But also we do need to be thinking much more carefully about anything new that gets built, about how that space will um, react to these really hot and inevitably really wet periods that are sitting in front of us. And I can't help thinking, for instance, building regulations probably need to start reducing the amount of glazing that you've got in your south facades and any building that comes up, regardless of whether or not it's air conditioned, because it's just not a sensible thing to do. If you go to any hot country, they do not have large expanses of glazing on their on the sun-facing facade of their building. So, you know, there's we 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 need regulations and um, you know people who are kind of dictating what the built environment looks like to be thinking fifty years ahead, and not just responding to the data that exists right now. Um, and then as individuals, obviously, we, you know, we we do whatever we can. We should all be doing whatever we can to try and keep comfortable and, and to make sure that we aren't making the situation worse
1: than it already is. A new exhibition titled Yesterday's Lambeth Today is opening on Thursday, the 25th of August at the Lambeth Archives in the Minette Library in Lambeth. Spanning 1965 to 1980, the exhibition considers the important architectural legacy of the legendary Ted Hollenby across Lambeth. Known for designing a number of modernist estates across the capital, Hollenby also achieved notoriety for restoring the Arts and Crafts Red House in Bexley Heath. Under Ted's leadership, Lambeth Department of Architecture and Planning, which came about in 1965, set about building a new Jerusalem for the borough. This exhibition offers an overview of the time with examples of the glorious success and abject failures and includes high-rise towers, large estates, rehabilitation and infill, and low-rise, high-density housing, illustrated by documents and historic photographs from the Lambeth Archives collections and by photographs of the buildings today. Helen, what do you think of Ted Hollenby's work? I'm a big
0: fan, I'll be honest with you, I don't know um all of his work really well, but the stuff that I am aware of, I'm a huge fan of. I think the thing for me that has resonated, particularly whilst working on the design district, has been um the focus on community. So it's really just about people first and then creating spaces for um those people to be able to come together and interact with each other and, and you know and and enjoy. That's still evident today, I think, in, in, in his work and um, is a really important um, approach to architecture that particularly up until that period was often ignored and can frankly still be ignored
1: sometimes by some schemes still. In other news, there's a huge amount coming up in the design district calendar. Firstly, the design district is one of the neighbourhoods taking part in this year's Open House Festival, running for two weeks between the 8th and 21st of September. If that's not already in everyone's calendar, now's the time. Also in September, the Design District will be hosting a week of events for the London Design Festival featuring industry talks, pop-up installations, open studio events, and immersive workshops. Bureau Talks is a series of keynote talks from leading design figures, which is fast approaching, and open studio events from many of the creative industries now housed here in the design district, which is exciting because I really want to go see those beautiful sewing machines that I've been eyeing in one of those studios. So, Helen, can you tell us a bit more about some of the highlights coming up in the design district calendar? Absolutely. Well, for
0: first of all, I am beyond excited because um this time last year. We um, we did manage to pull together some events for London Design Festival and it was very much our launch, but anyone who came will remember that actually quite a lot of the buildings weren't complete and the contractors were really struggling to get those last bits finished thanks to COVID, Brexit and so on. So it's an absolute delight to now be at the point where we've got everything ready to go and people can properly come and have a snoop around. Um, so it's absolutely fantastic. And we're really excited that we've got um, a full programme for Open House Festival, which is going to be very exciting to get people in and around all of the buildings. Um, You will be able to come and have a proper snoop through Bureau, our co-working space that we're recording in now, as well as looking inside some of the other buildings. And as I've said, there's a real um, variety, a sort of pick-and-mix approach to architectural styles here. So hopefully it'll make for a great day out And then moving on from there, we go into our London Design Festival um, activities. And as you mentioned, we have um, um, open studios. So we we have got a a big variety of businesses here. We have everything from desk-based creatives to a lot of businesses that make things. Um, So, for example, you will be able to visit um, East, who are a florist based here in the design district. Homework store. Um, who um, make candles, personal fragrances and soaps and room scents and so on. Wizard Works, who make fantastic bicycle bags. Um, We also have a lot of the other studios open, so photography studios, graphic design studios and so on. So please do come around and have a look. On top of that, we've also got a retail trail because we thought there were so many people here who make things, wouldn't it be nice to actually go to a trade show for once and come home with a souvenir? So if you're feeling brave enough, you can get yourself a tattoo, find a way to remember the week permanently with a tattoo. Um, And you would also be able to um, buy bags from Wizard Works. You could go and get a headshot taken at the Photography Foundation. We have a ceramicist made by Manos um, who will be making pots, allowing people to take part in making as well as being able to buy things, um, ceramics from his store. Um, So, yeah, plenty going on. And the talks program is really shaping up now as well. We've got um, three talks. One is focused on sustainability with our very own Helen Kirkham. We also have a talk which looks at um, the mistakes and failures of our careers and how they might make us stronger. Um, And Tom Dixon is one of the panelists on that. And then we're also going to be looking at the metaverse and Web3, um, which will be chaired by Matthew Drinkwater with some excellent panellists alongside that. So there's a lot of very exciting um, content and um, I hope everyone can make it down. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The London a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal,
1: which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, #lnddwn. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support
0: our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.